I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I had a guest that came in and was like, we love you, we're so happy to see you. And I started crying, obviously, and I was like, I love you guys too, so nice to see you again. Like full, full on tears on the floor. <laughs> but you know, it's nice, that's, that's why you do it, right? That's, that's why we're here. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Jacqueline Doucette is the head sommelier of the three Michelin restaurant Geranium in Copenhagen. Originally from Massachusetts, her passion for food steered her towards a pathway of discovery that has now journeyed into a love affair of wine. Hi, Jacqueline. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Now, before wine, there was food, but before all of that, there was theatre. Is that right? (laughs) That is very correct. (laughs) And what did you study in theatre? Well, nothing really in particular. I I was a bit lost, I think, in high school, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, you know, in the States, you need to pay for university. Um, So that was my, like, dream. I wanted to to sing and act, and I had always done this um, since I was really, really young. Um, And that just didn't quite work out for me the way I wanted it to. So here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I think that um, performance and theatre has a lot in line with perhaps what we do on a restaurant floor. Do you think you use some of the skills that you learned along the way in a restaurant? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, can't be happy all the time. You know, I think that's a really difficult thing to do and, you know, to come to a place where expectations can be very high and be smiling and joyous all the time is not terribly realistic. So yeah, there's definitely an element of, of theater and what I do. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's got to be a little bit of an act and at, at the end of the day, it, there it is like a, a performance in terms of, um, you know, speaking to people and kind of projecting your voice and standing up, up in front of people. Do you think that, you know, singing and, and acting has helped you there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, hmm. A lot of people comment on my accent um, that it's not very American. I mean, I don't hear myself talk <laughs> so often, so I don't really know what it sounds like. But I think a lot of that projection and pronunciation and annunciation comes from theater. I had a really strict teacher, Ralph Hammond. I know you're not listening, but if you are, um, <laughs> and he, he was always screaming, diction, diction, you know, so definitely. <laughs> well, I think it, it's a wonderful skill to have. Like a lot of hospitality and hospitality greats, you kind of started out as a dishwasher. Tell me a little bit about that. Oof, um, so my mom is an excellent cook. My dad, not so much, but my mom, my mom is a great cook. And uh, her partner at the time sort of noticed that I was taking to it as well. And when I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, he said, well, you could go to the Culinary Institute of America. And I just sort of passed it off. And my first job, um, yeah, I was a dishwasher in like a Spanish tapas restaurant because that's all they had open for me. Um, And actually the dishwasher didn't even work. So I had to do everything by hand, which was a bit of a nightmare. Um, Yeah, ouch indeed. (laughs) Super ouch. (laughs) It's not geranium, but it's, uh, you know, still tough work. And then uh, I was a prep cook for a while after that. And uh, then a a line cook. So I I started in kitchens. My first restaurant jobs were in were in kitchens. Well, I mean, food's such a wonderful avenue. What changed for you, you know, 
studying at the Culinary Institute of America as a chef. And what did change to you kind of moving more into wine? So the program at the CIA, you can do, I'll call it the CIA, it's a lot easier. Um, so you can do an associate's degree, a bachelor's or a master's degree, but you have to start off with the associate's degree. And it, at the time when I was there, it ran in three-week blocks. So every three weeks or six weeks, if it was a more intensive program, you would have a new, a new course. So in your second year, um, you have a wines course and it's just, <clears throat> pardon me, um, a brief introduction to wine, um, you know, where they, they sum up the entirety of France with Bordeaux and, and Burgundy, Champagne, Alsace, you know, and, and Loire. Um, the professor I had, um, he was very um, supportive of me in a lot of ways. And he just said, you know, you're, you're, you're good at this. You have a knack for it. You should consider, you know, pursuing it more. Um, and then after that, you have to go to restaurants, they call it, like restaurant row, we used to say. Um, and you would, again, at the time, spend six weeks in two different restaurants. And I had a professor there, he's from Napoli, and he said the same. Um, so I just sort of fell into it, I guess. I, I had a knack for it, but it, it it changed very quickly and happened very quickly. And my decision to go from the kitchen to the front of the house was just, I mean, really based upon somebody else telling me maybe that's what I should do. <laughs> so I did it. Ooh. <laughs> Well, I'm sure he saw, like he said, he saw something that that saw a spark and and something that you were naturally good at, which is pretty exciting. Now, you're a bit of a travel junkie. Early on in your career, do you have any stories of, you know, drinking wine or or tasting beverages that you kind of remember fondly? Mm, Oh, geez. I, so my family doesn't really drink. My dad, um, just really started getting into wine and my mom, you know, she drinks like Bailey's on the rocks and a Sam Adams. She's pretty, she's pretty, uh, uh, yeah, she keeps to herself in that way. But, um, so I didn't have this like tradition of drinking wine around the table or anything. So my first real experience drinking wine, I won a scholarship to go to Italy when I was 19, I guess it was 19 um, years old. And it was with Banfi actually. So it was a whole tour of Italy. And I remember listening to Reuniti on ice. Do you know this, this jingle? It's really terrible. Um, but it's stuck in my head. Um, no, it's okay. You can Google it. <laughs> But um, they had like all of these Lambruscos and I remember thinking like, oh, geez, that's very good. And I used to like sap on and on and on about how much I loved Lambrusco until I realized it wasn't cool. But I still love Lambrusco. It's a little bit strange, but, you know, that was like my first my first big takeaway from this experience was like, oh, there's sparkling red wine and they make it in Italy and it tastes really good. Um, But I didn't know any better. So (laughs) I still think it's delicious. (laughs) I don't think there's anything wrong with Lambrusco. And it's funny these days because you see a lot of kind of more natural kind of, you know, funky winemakers doing sparkling red things. (laughs) Sparkling anyway. Gosh, wine fashion. (laughs) So true. So true. Now, when did geranium come into the picture? Um, So about almost seven years ago now, six and a half years ago I was working in DC and I came on holiday and I sort of had a quarter life crisis I guess <laughs> as you do and I just gave my CV out to pretty much anybody who would listen um, and I just like I knew about geranium and I had wanted to work at geranium but you know it was more of a pipe dream than it was an actual reality but you know geranium seven years ago wasn't the geranium it is today it was a very different beast I guess um, but the wine program was still pretty incredible and it still had 
this huge selection and this myriad of producers and really incredible vintage runs and a lot of them. Um, so I just thought, well, geez, I might, I might as well try. Um, and I, I think, yeah, like I said, I was in the right place at the right time and they were hiring and were willing to put up with a visa and that was it. It, it, it was a total, uh, yeah, like I said, quarter life crisis just thought, well, <laughs> if I'm not going to do it now, when will I, you know, so why not? Well, I'm so glad you did. You were hired as a sommelier at the time. What was the training like? Ooh, training at Geranium. I don't really know if we have a serious training program for sommeliers. There's a lot of trust that they place in their employees, um, which is very different from what I'm used to. It's more of getting used to how we do things here and whether or not you jive with the team. Um, so I didn't really have so much training per se. Um, the first things I did was like clean up the staff meal and clean the toilets and put the cutlery away. I think I polished cutlery honestly for like a year. Um, and then eventually I, I got to do, we call it the Gaganau, which is the wine, uh, the wine room where we do all the restocking and everything. But there, yeah, there wasn't so much training to be honest. It was really like, if you want to study, they will support you in it and will allow you the time and will assist with it. But they place a lot of trust in their staff and it's just about, can you get along with us? Can you do the service to the degree that we want? I mean, everybody here, when I started was trained in restaurants before this. So this is kind of like a culmination, I guess, of all of your skill sets. Um, yeah. That's amazing because you, you offer a huge uh, – oh, the wine list is incredible, but you offer quite a lot of wine pairings as well. How do they go about kind of getting you to approach a table and, and you know, speak about wine? Is it that you kind of – each individual kind of makes it up as they go along in terms of what they're saying to a table or is it more of a kind of script? No, nobody's – actually, nobody's ever asked me this before. Um, it's it's really an individual thing. Um I think like the SOM team that we have now is, is incredibly talented and everybody's really well-versed in all of their wines and they're also personable. Um, so we just sort of let people do as they think is best. Um, the four different wine pairings for me, the way that I describe them is different from uh, my colleague Andrea um, or, or Alex, for example. Um, it's, it's pretty much... I mean, now it's 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 a lot of price, but beforehand it used to be smaller, more biodynamic producers in the first one, and then more classic examples in the next, and then you know bigger names in the last the last two. But now it's sort of morphed into like Andrea and I's tastes at different price points. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it can be tough because we're in Europe, and when you when you title a, a wine pairing classic and appellation, you there's a sort of set of expectations that people have for you. So you have to be careful the way that you talk about it because not many people see, you know, Eben Sadie, for example, or South Africa for that matter as a classic wine producing region. I mean, we're in Europe, right? So it's, it's France and maybe Italy if we're lucky and Germany, if people have, you know, no fear of Riesling. So <laughs> the way that we speak about it is more because we're excited about the wines we're pouring on the pairing and there's no real, set of boundaries or parameters that we need to work within. And of course, if one of our colleagues says something, you know, that's factually incorrect, we'll correct them after the fact and allow them to correct their mistake if need be with, 
with the guest, but otherwise it's it's pretty loosey goosey, <laughs> you know. Uh, loosey goosey. Uh, I think that that's amazing. First of all, fear of breezing. What an oxymoron! I can't believe that that's a thing, but it is. Um, but how do you kind of achieve consistency? I mean, three Michelin restaurant. You know, you're like you said, the expectations are incredibly high. If you have, like you said, all these different personalities, is there a touchstone where you kind of say, okay? Do you, do you do you explain and, and let your personality come through, but we have to kind of have some level of consistency of what each person, each guest is getting, whether they're served by you or someone else? Oh, sure. I mean, we have service standards, like the way that you would set up a trolley for a service is the same. You know, we, we all have to have, if you need a decanter, you have a decanter, your candle is on the bottom, you have your cork presenter, you have your wine tool, your napkin, your glass, etc. Um, you know, you put the glasses on the table before you pull up the trolley with the wine unless you're me and you forget all the time. Um, but you know, otherwise there's, there's certain service procedures. The, the pour size is the same. Um, you know, the, the table gets cleared, you set the cutlery, you do the wine. It's da, 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 da. there's, there's certain parameters. Yeah. But, but otherwise, um, no, we really don't. I mean, it, we're lucky. We have our pick of the lot with sums and they know a lot. So, I mean, all of our sums at the moment are all, um, slotted to take their advanced course in the CMS um, next year. So we don't need to babysit so much per se. If we do have younger sums, we'll keep a more of a keen ear on them. Um, but no, we don't, we don't have so many set rules. Um, it's just more of if they say something really inconsistent with what everybody else is saying, then we'll give them a nod. But otherwise we don't have so many issues with this. We're, we're very lucky to be honest. Mm. I mean, that, that sounds really exciting because it, there's such a human element to service, which um, sometimes is void in, in, in really top restaurants because, it, you know, it is so polished, but it kind of can sometimes be a little bit perfunctory in a way as well. So, um, I, I mean, to me, that sounds wonderful. I mean, I feel like this is what Geranium's famous for. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. In 2022, Geranium was named World's Best Restaurant. Tell me what that moment was like because I I just cannot imagine saying, oh, my God, we did it. We're number one. So tell me about what that moment was like. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I, I only speak for myself, of course, but um, relief. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, don't need to do that anymore. Um, no, it, it it was pretty, it was pretty cool. It's pretty incredible. And, and, you know, when I started in Geranium, there was no like, oh, we're going to be the best restaurant in the world. We're going to work for, like, it was never, that was never, um, we didn't even talk about it. I didn't even think about it until we got to number five, whenever that was 2019, I think I don't remember. Um, it wasn't really a conversation. We were just doing what we were doing and doing it well. And if people were happy, great, you know? Um, so I think you kind of know, when it's happening, but there's always this doubt. Um, we went to Antwerp, um, my colleague Andrea and I, um, with the rest of the management team. And we thought at that point, oh, okay, maybe we have a shot. Um, but that was Noma in their last iteration who ended up getting number one. Um, but we were pretty close behind. So, you know, there's, there's always times I think where you take things for granted, but for me, it was a lot of relief. It's a lot of work and a lot of pressure and, I'm I'm okay with pressure in a fine dining setting and meeting expectations, but when there's, you know, a, a city's entire gastronomic scene riding on it, it can feel particularly stressful. <laughs> um, but it was nice. It was relieving. I mean, a lot of these voters, we know 
very well and and I really like quite a few of them um so when I first started serving these guests and these people who are voting for this restaurant, it, it's very stressful. But over time, you sort of get to know them a bit and what they like, and you can tailor the experience a bit more. And, you know, we had a good three years of exposure to people like this. So, um, but I don't know, it's a funny thing. The world's 50 best restaurants, isn't it? Like, I always feel according to who. <laughs> um, it's a bit, you know, like for me, the best restaurants are not these because that's not the style of dining I like. It's a very subjective thing, isn't it? To, to decide the best restaurant. You know, it's, it's a collection of people who have the ability and the financial stability to dine in places like this. Like I would never be able to decide, right. I would never be able to decide this because I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm not a billionaire. Right. So I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, we have the opportunity to dine in a lot of amazing restaurants, but you know, not three, four, five times over in the span of a year. So I think it's tough, this 50 best thing, because, you know, according to who. But uh, it's cool, man. It's cool. And what it's done for Copenhagen is pretty crazy. It's really incredible the amount of people who travel just for food in Copenhagen. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Wow. That's pretty exciting. I mean, you know, like you said, it's it's more than just perhaps the people that in the restaurant, but it's a city and it's a culture and it's a, you know, it, it elevates that level of dining across the board for the people you care about, which is amazing. But what did you drink when you celebrate it? I don't even remember. I think I was drinking a Negroni. Um, I'm a creature of habit. I always drink Negronis. And I think we had this wild idea, like, let's, let's do Negronis for everybody. Horrible idea. <laughs> but for sure, I was drinking Negroni. Um, and then I didn't get much champagne in my mouth, actually. A lot of it was sprayed at me. So, <laughs> And I think we actually stained the ceiling. We have these really expensive, like, uh, sound-proofing uh, ceilings, and there's uh, champagne all over them. Um, but, yeah, for sure, it was a Negroni. Well, at least it's a good story to tell. You can say, look, you know, that particular stain was from this moment and uh, I think maybe they let you off the hook. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I have a question that's completely unrelated and that is how much does soccer distract the staff? Because you look out over a soccer pitch and you've got an amazing view. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like football, so... It can be a little bit distracting for me. <laughs> um, we also have some, like Saren, one of the owners is a serious FC Co fan, FC Copenhagen, who plays here. Um, Alex, you know, Alex is, is a pretty big soccer fan as well. So he's always in there. <laughs> um, but I think it, I think it depends. Like in general, the front of the house staff has a little bit more time on their hands <laughs> um, uh, to go and watch the football. But uh yeah, it it can be it can be distracting, but we also like there's a ton of Italians on the team as well. And when Napoli and Milan were playing, or Rome or whoever it was, I don't know, I don't follow uh, Serie. They were all in the in the office watching that. So anytime there's a Premier League game on, it's on in the office. So you know, it we're we're big football fans here by and large. <laughs> I love that, but I just kept thinking, you know, I'm sure that the restaurants open all the time, so there's never that moment where there's an amazing game being played and the restaurants shut down, and you can just have like epic front of house seats you know uh we have done that we have done that um <laughs> so we're only open wednesday through saturday but a lot of the danish football matches are on sundays and mondays so we're actually not here anyways but when we have champions league here there's been some really cool matches um as well as for the euros so if there's a big match i think it was france denmark who played pardon me here um we 
I mean, I wasn't there for it, but the, the staff set up a bunch of chairs and they all had something to drink and got to watch the map. So that was pretty cool. Wow, that's awesome. I love to hear that. Um, Rasmus and Soren, you know, are an amazing team. The fact that they're, you know, represented by the front and back of house, how does that affect their relationship with the staff as a kind of front and back of house team? Oh, sure. Um, we have an incredible relationship with, with one another. Um, it, I've never worked in a place where everybody got along so well and really jived together. It's an open kitchen. So even if you didn't want to speak to somebody in the kitchen, you have to. Um, and there's a lot of communication between us and the chefs during service as well. Um, so there's there's nowhere to hide per se. It's It's a really convivial environment and relationship that we have. Um, Soren is a character. He really is. And he's always here and he's always on the floor um, when he's not watching football. <laughs> he's always on the floor and uh, he's always sort of laughing and joking with us. And we always have a good time and the chefs are involved as well. So it's, they've really fostered this environment and this culture in the restaurant of convivialism, I guess. Is that a word? Convivialism? It sounds it sounds like a word. Um, but they've really fostered this. Yeah, I know. It sounds right. No? Um, but they've really fostered this. And that's something they have always wanted in the restaurant. And I think back to what I was saying earlier about being lucky with the staff. They, they hire people for this. You have to have, I mean, this is a restaurant filled with 40 enormous personalities. So you have to. Um, so it's. I think it's a hiring choice as well that they make as well as the environment in the restaurant during service were quite casual. So that definitely helps also. Mm. I mean, I think in terms of talking about service, you know, casual is something probably you most people wouldn't associate with, with a three Michelin restaurant. But, you know, one of the things that's most important about stepping into a restaurant is feeling comfortable. And I think that, you know, that idea of being casual would probably put so many guests at ease the minute they step into the restaurant. Yeah, we're really good at disarming people. Um, I mean, we can also, all of us are, you know, trained in other restaurants and um, we can we can play that game if that's what people want us to do. It's, it's all about the guest, you know, but at some point it's, this is what we do here and you don't have to like it. We're not forcing you to eat here. If you want us to be stiffer and more formal, then it's not really the place for you. You know, it's, it's, we can be more formal to a degree, but that's not really what Dranium is about or ever really has been about. So. I love that because like you said, we want restaurants to be, have their own personalities, don't we? We don't want to just, you know, have what we want out of them. That's why we go to different restaurants. So if, if, if you're comfortable in, in what you add to the dining scene, then, you know, that confidence would come through. Sure. I mean, it's worth noting we have the luxury of being able to do that because of the 50 best, because of our stature. Many restaurants can't do this, you know, many restaurants because they have to fit in this box. You know, we're lucky. We can do this because we can say, oh, yeah, but we're geranium. You know, <laughs> we're, we can do this because we're very lucky. I, I, I don't think I've been able to do this anywhere else. You, you can't always just say, well, this is how we do it. And if you don't like it, you can leave. You know, it's we're, we're lucky that we can do that. And not that we say those words, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, if you would like to describe your particular wine services in Jacqueline Desette is serving me at a table and you say, use three words. How would you describe your wine service? Ooh, Ooh, that's tough. 
Um, I know. I've just thrown that in there. Sorry. <laughs> um, I would probably say funny. <laughs> like funny, haha. Like I, I crack a lot of jokes. Um, that's just kind of how I am. Um, funny. I'm fast. I'm quite quick. So I guess funny, quick, and ooh, informative. I don't like to educate people per se, if that's not what they're here for. But if you're asking me good questions, I am really, really happy to give good answers. Um, so yeah, um, funny, quick and informative would be would be me, I think. I love that. I love that because, you know, I think in life, um, first of all, I don't want to wait too long for a drink because, you know, right. had a hard day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And right. I love funny because exactly. isn't life better when you're having a bit of a chuckle? <laughs> I love that. I, mean, I, I think so, but, you know, not, not everybody agrees with me, but that's okay. There's plenty of other similes here, so lucky for them. <laughs> lucky I for think them. funny is great. I mean, the more, the older I get, the more I look for people that in my life that make me laugh because I feel like, well, I want to do more of that. <laughs> now, you recently went on a trip to Burgundy. How was your trip? Mm. Delicious. It was hot, actually. It was like 30, 32 degrees every day. It was really... um. I don't know. It, it was not the Burgundy I had pictured in my mind. I thought like maybe 25 and sunny, but I guess that's climate change for you. Um, we had a really, really nice time. Actually, my, my father and my aunt were there as well, which was cool. Um, so that was really nice to see them. It was a bit of a bit of a family trip, work trip sort of situation. Um, but it was incredible. And I've sort of been putting off going to Burgundy <clears throat> pardon me, for a long time because I feel like it's easy. I don't know. I, yeah, I just thought it was easy, but it actually ended up being way more difficult than I wanted it to be <laughs> with like arranging visits. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible how fast word travels once somebody is there. And I was getting emails. Oh, if you want to come to this domain and go to that domain, it's like, Oh geez, like I've only got three days. I'm <laughs> trying to, um, but it was incredible. It's changed my perspective on a lot of on a lot of things, but namely vintages. I'm really bad with vintages. It's it's a big weak spot of mine. And if I haven't gone to a place and heard, you know, 27 people talk about the vintage, I won't remember it. So that's been incredibly, <laughs> incredibly important for me to be in Burgundy and, and hear people talk about, you know, these five, 10 most recent vintages and, and have a really solid feel for them. And also to see different, not trends, but ways that people are evolving um, and dealing with this, like, there's one particular producer cutting out the inside, um, the stock, but still fermenting with the rest of the cluster. So I thought that was really cool and an interesting way to tackle like greenness and stockiness in your wine. Um, but yeah, there was sort of two factions and two sort of different methods we heard over and over and over. And this is this like 100% whole cluster versus, you know, de-stemmed and what percentage of each you use. And, you know, the numbers floating around were like 70% and 30 to 40%. So it, it was really cool to hear that. Um, I think sommeliers are funny because we, we think we need to know everything always all the time. And that's just not the truth because sometimes the winemakers, you know, it's, it's wine is fluid literally, but also it's, you know, you're working with nature, you're working with vines, you're working with things that have a life of their own and you can't always do the same thing and you can't know it all. <laughs> so that was really reaffirming to hear and see from many people. That was something I haven't had in other wine region visits. Yeah, I think I, it, it, you, you're right. It's so interesting because I think 
you know, when we think of Burgundy, we think of like going to Mecca or somewhere, and um, that. But you know, a lot of a lot of the growers there, and you know, even the negotiants, and you know, they're all like you said, they they keep a, some stuff close to their chest, and some stuff they simply don't know because they they are just like, well, I did what was right in the vintage, and I didn't note it down as you know, like right. I just did what I needed to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's cool. And I, I, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. And I mean, it's nice to, to have lots of doors open for you as well, because I mean, some people find Burgundy, you know, like very closed door and, and with languages and, and things like that. But um, it's always nice when you're really surprised by somewhere that you go, I think, especially when, especially somewhere like, like Burgundy or somewhere where you, you, you kind of think that perhaps you'll know what the experience is and then you're pleasantly surprised. Mm, yeah, it was really yeah, pleasantly surprised is a good way to put it. So I want to know what's what's next for Jacqueline? What do you do after you've worked at the world's best restaurant and you are, you know, at the top of the food chain in terms of writing the wine list and buying the wines? Where will you ever go from here? And what, what's next on the cards? What are you excited about? I think you already know the answer to that, Shante. Um, <laughs> I'm coming to Australia in October. Woo-hoo! So I don't have... <laughs> bit of a leading question. No, I um, I don't have anything solid set in stone. And even if I did, I don't think I would be telling you just yet. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, I just want to make sure that I keep learning. And I, I've grown so much at Geranium and learned so much about myself and my own personal style, I guess. And not to say that I won't change it, but I'm really happy with where I am in my life. So I just hope I can find a place that's happy to have me and my style of service and my brain the way it is, you know? Um, I think eventually we'll, we'll open up our own place. Um, I'd like to import, but you know, that's a bit further down the line. Um, but for now, uh, yeah, I'm happy to run another program, but I'm also just happy to learn more about Australian wine. Um, like I said before, you, you don't really know a place unless you're there, do you? So who knows? I don't know. I've always been pretty like up in the air about many things and my career has been one of them. And I, I'm always of the opinion, like if it's right, it's right and it will work out. And if it's not, then it wasn't meant to be. And that's okay. Oh, well, I have all the faith in the world that you will land on your feet and where you should be. I've just poured myself a glass of wine because I'm excited that you're coming down to Australia. That's wonderful <laughs> news. Yeah. Another fantastic sommelier in this country is amazing. And like you said, how it's so great to hear that someone like yourself who, you know, has been pouring some of the most luxurious, incredible wines, because I follow along very closely, um, is excited to come down and learn about Australian wine. I, I love that, but also you've got so much to offer. And I think that especially being Aussies that are a little bit more casual and and don't take ourselves too seriously, I think you're just going to fit in here like a glove and hopefully never leave. I hope so. That's the plan, but <laughs> that's the plan anyways. But yeah. Oh, that's super exciting. And um, I'm sure Geranium's going to be very sad to lose you, but um, you know, it's been, a, a, I'm sure, a very special place in your heart that, you know, you may, you never know, go back to one day. Yep. I mean, to eat, maybe not to work. I think I'm, I'm getting a little too old to do this, but <laughs> not even old, but you know, you know, fine dining is, is a particular beast. So yeah, I, I should hope so. I, I'll, I'll miss them. And they know that they know that very well. I love this place. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly sounds like a special place and, um, yeah, I hope I have the opportunity to eat there one day because, you know, from all the stuff that I have known, which is not a huge amount, but, um, 
they all talk about geranium in the same way and it, it really seems like a very, very unique, very special place that perhaps doesn't operate the way that a lot of other three Michelin restaurants would. And um, I think that that's what makes it so special. I would agree. <laughs> now, I need to ask you, and I know that this question, and Alex is probably going to say this question is so naff, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you'd only drink three drinks for the rest of your life, say today, it doesn't have to be tomorrow, but if you had to make the decision today, what would you be drinking and why? Okay. Are they alcoholic only or non-alcoholic as well? Whatever you want. Okay. Um, coffee. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> You know, I think I could live without alcohol, but definitely not coffee. I love coffee, and I think it's just as geeky as wine, and I like this a lot. So, coffee, uh, a Negroni, um, like I said, creature of habit, and if I could get totally weird, 1996 Latash. Right. Serious. Pre presuming, presuming the wine doesn't age, right? Like, I have to think long term. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so fine, 96 Latash. It's almost like the the moment you experience something so amazing, it's just that replicated moment again. Like the like you said, like the first time you've tried a Latash or the first time you've had any DRC, you just kind of like, I want that moment over and over again. Oh, God, I think I almost cried. Honestly, I was so moved because I've had a lot of DRC, lucky me, and uh, not, not on my own dime, of course, but uh, that, that one in particular I remember very well. And just the bouquet on it was was crazy. And it was one of these moments like, oh, wine is cool. You know, <laughs> wine is really cool. I don't think that crying over a wine is a bad thing at all. Maybe crying into a wine glass if you're like that sad. But um, yeah, well, it was at work. So, you know, it was a little weird to be so emotional. <laughs> so, the guy definitely thought I was really, really strange, but it's fine. Whatever. It was my first 96 Latash. So I'm allowed. <laughs> I think you're totally allowed. When I did um, a flight of DLCs, I welled up and I was like proper, just like tears running down my face. And I was like, I don't. I don't care. I don't care. I'm never going to do this by myself ever again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Oh, emotions. Whatever. I've had a few moments uh, in my career on the restaurant floor where I've served someone really beautiful and they've just been lovely guests and I've got, I've welled up and I've been like, oh man. Oh man, me too. Isn't it weird? 100%. 100%. I had a guest that came in and was like, we love you. We're so happy to see you. And I started crying, obviously. And I was like, I love you guys too. So nice to see you again. Like full, full on tears on the floor. <laughs> but you know, it's nice. That's, that's why you do it, right? That's, that's why we're here. So it, it, a hundred percent is, isn't it? And yeah, I think it's sometimes people, especially guests don't realize just the effect that they, they can have on you. It may be work to you, but, uh, you know, a good experience of serving someone can be, a beautiful life experience. Yeah. Well, Jackie, it's been so lovely to get to know you a little bit better. I've learned a little bit more about the word jive. I've learned a bit more about you and I am thrilled that you're coming down to Australia. I hope we can catch up, but thank you for spending your morning with me. Thank you for having me. My gosh, it was a treat. It was a treat. <laughs> you're gorgeous. I will chat to you soon and cheers to you. Thanks, Shante. See you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.